today on The Big Inside, a word we all know, one that a lot of our listeners probably use every single day, came from somewhere you probably wouldn't even expect. But at the same time, you also probably would. The point is, we're taking a trip back in time today on a very special episode of the show. We're really excited. That workout for your ears begins right now. Here we go. It's another Monday night somewhere. Wait. Wait, that doesn't make any that doesn't make any sense. Oh, well. I, I guess it's time once again for the big inside. Broadcasting from the world-famous Public Alley 701 in the etymological city of Boston, Massachusetts, I'm Christian Mady, a.k.a. XN, and this, this is The Big Inside, an ongoing discussion that intersects and connects what transforms the body with what transforms the world, and then turns them both inside out. We're all about the conversation, not the education, but with our luck, you'll probably end up learning something along the way, especially today. My gosh, you are gonna, your brain is going to have, it's going to get like a bruise. You're going to be like, ow, I'm full. My brain is full. It's dumping out information because um, we have some, look, we have some big changes going on here at the Big Inside. Super good changes. We're very excited. I think you're really going to like what we have coming up uh, over the next few months. Today, obviously, I've got no one in the sidecar flying solo, but Scott and Nick and whoever else are going to have sidecars are coming back. Um next week and we'll also be having our regular guest discussions there were some really cool guests coming up we have like the psychologist who studies the psychology of gender and talking about dudes and their muscles and we have a really huge huge celebrity and by huge i don't mean popular i mean literal size like this man is gigantic and we're going to talk to him about why <laughs> like why um really good stuff coming up um Got pro strongman and all these different things. Uh, yeah, cool stuff. So you're going to want to listen next week. Um, but also, one quick announcement. We're going to be shortening our format. We're going to tighten this thing up. We really want you guys to keep coming back. So uh, in upcoming episodes, you can expect the episodes to be shorter, easier to listen to, less work for your ears. Um, if we have like a long interview or a discussion at some point, we'll usually split those up into two episodes. But good news, shorter stuff. Everyone's happy. You spoke. We listened. See, that's how good we are. Go go to the website. Reach out to us because we listen to you guys. Um, today on the show, we're going to go back in time, literally. Actually, you know, virtually. We're not, I mean, literally. I, I don't have that capacity to virtually. I get them confused. Whatever. Virtually. We're going back in time, literally. 150 years from this very moment, we're going back in time. Um We've been doing some interesting research for upcoming programs, and we found some really interesting nuggets of history. We wanted to share some of them with you. So, um, I'm like, we love when the physique world slams into the real world, and this is one of those stories from the past. It's going to surprise you, where bodybuilding changed the course of a city and maybe even the bigger world. Who knows? But it's uh, it's some really interesting history stuff. So, I'm going to shut up this part of the show now. And I'm excited to bring you this little feature that we're calling The Ballad of RJ. Um, and uh, yeah, I think you're really going to like it. Really excited. Here it comes.
Most people thought of RJ as a small guy. Like, even by the standards of 1869, a time when folks stood a little shorter in general anyway, RJ was still considered, you know, especially small. Now, he stood at just 5 foot 5 inches, but that might have been a slight exaggeration on the truth. And he was only about 130 pounds, give or take, soaking wet. Yeah, RJ was small. And if you saw him at 18 years old in the spring of 1869 as he walked up the hill on Tremont Street, you probably would have just mistaken him for a younger boy. And not just because he had that kind of little kid face with childlike features. It was also because of the way he moved, like an excited little boy. He stepped quick and light, sometimes breaking into a trot. So if you saw him on Tremont, it was usually because he was headed up to Park Street, because that's where he went almost every day. For a little guy like RJ, this was the best part of his day. In the basement of the Park Street Church, there was a gym, and that's where he was headed. That's where he went every day. And it seems strange to us now that there would be a weight room in a church basement, but back then, that was actually a pretty normal place for a small gym to be. In the 1800s, gyms were popping up all over cities, especially wealthy cities like Boston. And so they had to tuck themselves away into any nook or cranny they could get a hold of, old stables or the backs of theaters or the basement of a church. But that was fine by RJ. I mean, he was pretty religious, even for an 18-year-old. He was probably one of the more religious men in the gym most days. A lot of these guys just fronted being good Christians so they could get to use all that good equipment. Yeah, it was different than what we know today. Back then, gyms were more makeshift, improvised. Equipment was literally invented by whoever was in charge. And often it was different from one gym to the next. But that didn't matter to RJ. He was just determined to not be so small. In fact, he was going to get big. Real big. Like, surprisingly big, he said. In fact, he promised the other guys he would eventually become the very best physique that that gym had ever seen. Maybe even the best physique in all of Boston. Naturally, all these other guys laughed. Or they just ignored him, or maybe they teased him a little. He was more like a mascot to them anyway. No one really took notice of such a little guy. No one really took RJ seriously. They were just there to focus on getting strong. It was kind of a big deal back then, you know, for a man to show his grit by being stronger than his buddies. And the gym was a place you came to show off your masculinity, 
you lifted heavy stuff to prove that you were, above all else, a real man. And that was just how people saw it back in the late 1800s. idea probably came from the circuses of the day, which would often come through places like Boston. They were sort of a big deal. And circuses had strongmen. And the strongmen, they were among the most popular attractions. I mean, every circus had one, or two, or a few. Brawny men in ridiculous tights, with exaggerated facial hair, usually growling and snarling at the top of their act. And these guys were big. Like, really big. Like, even by our standards today. At least twice the size of a guy like RJ. And they would lift just about anything you put in front of them. Or bend things break things, or any other feat they were challenged to do, and it was all seen as symbolic of manhood, and the crowd ate it up. Which is why gyms started becoming so popular. Every young dude wanted to have that kind of respect. Prove you're big and strong, and all the gals would get butterflies when you were around. That's what being a man's man is all about. Or at least, that's how the rumors went. So it was never really a surprise when a little guy like RJ, who people often described as pigeon-chested, would show up at one of these gymnasiums. Maybe he could figure out what he could do to just not be so, you know, so small. Gyms catered to this trend inspired by the strongman craze, and they were filled with heavy stuff for guys to lift. Sure, there were calisthenics and all that, but the real men, the manly men, well, they went for the heavy iron which was usually things like refashioned canning balls or whatever heavy object could be outfitted with a handle. Anything a guy could use to prove his manhood through intense feats of power. Stuff usually too heavy for the 18-year-old RJ. Well, at least that's what most of the guys thought. But it didn't matter. The gyms were a place where you could become someone, even if you didn't have that much to begin with. It didn't matter if you didn't have money, or a fancy pedigree, or come from a good family. If you could get strong, you could make something of yourself. And you know, this wasn't just a fad. This was actually, in a way, a fact. Because in a city like Boston in the late 1800s, a strong body could actually make a man his fortune. The city had just tripled in size, you see, literally. Like, they had filled in giant parts of Boston Harbor to make the city three times as big. And that's three times as many jobs and 
three times as many people. And it was filling up with all kinds of industry, from the garment district by South Station, to the shipping wharfs along Causeway Street, to those new factories rising on the far end of Fort Point Channel. There were jobs everywhere. Jobs for the picking. Well, for a man who was strong enough to handle such strenuous labor. This new era of industry may have meant more jobs, but it also meant harder jobs. So strength was more than just a proof of your virility. It was literally a source of your income. And that's why all these strongmen and boxers were such popular celebrities among the middle class. These brawny brutes symbolized the key ingredient a laborer needed to make his money. Strength. In fact, physical strength became associated with a new kind of bourgeois idea that physical health could even give you sort of a social status. If you had a sound body, people thought, then you must have a sound mind too. And a sound mind meant you were a sound person, and a sound person, well, that's just someone who is worth something. At the same time, over in Europe, the men in the cities of England were going through their own masculine identity watershed. It was the height of industrialization. Factories were crowding into the edges of cities and riverways, and around these factories were erected rows and rows of sad brick housing. Massive industrial towns with crumbling, soot-stained brick walls and sometimes no floors or doors, or windows. The manufacturing era had promised luxury and convenience to England, but it was actually having the opposite effect. Outside of London, the squalor and poverty on the streets of places like Birmingham and Camden Town were as bad as any third world slum imagery that you've seen today. The strife and disease ran unchecked, and villages were places people were forgotten to their life of laborious despair. Factories were dangerous, after all, and people regularly lost limbs or even died. Disease was everywhere, and the only predictable thing was crime. And there was a lot of crime. Petty crime, organized crime, entire crime states with family dynasties, in the industrial cities of England, if the factories didn't kill you, the street gangs just might. Someone had to step in. And eventually, someone did. the rescue came a sort of inner-city missionary movement. Led by their Christian convictions, religious missionaries would try to bring services into the squalid towns. And one of these missions you already know by name, the Young Men's Christian Association. Yeah, the YMCA. It was originally designed to try to assist the disenfranchised and downtrodden in the industrial, forgotten squalor towns of England, via the morality of Christian teachings, of course. 
if you wanted all they had to offer, and it was a lot more than what you probably already had. You had to swear off your wild ways. You had to be a good Christian. And they knew if they could just convert the gangs of young men, the leaders, these charismatic fellows, they could use their local influence to help change entire communities. And you know what? That formula actually worked. Wherever there were young men roaming and getting into trouble in cities, the YMCA soon showed up and set up base. As the YMCA movement grew throughout England, they soon turned their eyes on American cities. Our own industrial complex was fast mimicking the worst of England's. Our cities were full of rowdy, directionless men. After all, we had just finished a civil war, resulting in waves of restless young dudes flooding into the cities. Soon the streets of New York and Chicago and Pittsburgh and, of course, Boston, were teeming with rowdy young men, all coming into town looking for those jobs down on the wharfs and in the factories. And there was a lot of drinking, and a lot of cocaine, and a lot of crime, and a lot of fighting. It was only a matter of time before those YMCA folks showed up. And like any good missionaries, they stayed close to the money. A few cities in America were quite as flush with cash like the city on the hill. Besides, with so many schools and academic thinkers in Beantown, it would be easy to get financial donors and get a foothold in the city. And by the 1860s, they had done just that. In only a few short years, YMCA facilities were scattered throughout Boston, and they used the fitness fad to gain their popularity. Gymnasiums were seen as an antidote to the problem of violent machismo in the streets. And for the most part, once again, that recipe worked. Gyms and training spaces opened all over the city, even beyond those opened by the YMCA. Whether it was athletic facilities down by the Fens, or those gymnastic bars over on M Street in Southie, the city had found a way to channel young male energy that was flooding into it by the day. Just let the men lift. But while the YMCA may have found a way to attract young men in from off the streets, they had actually done very little to truly clean up their ways. Which is probably why RJ stood out a little bit in the basement gym of the Park Street Church. RJ just wasn't wild. Sure, he had no end of energy, but he hadn't come into town to get lost in the endless string of burlesque theaters on Washington Street or to drink cheap gin in the jazz clubs off of Columbus. No, he wasn't there for all that. He was there to get bigger, like he promised he would. And he was working on it working on it in ways that were totally different from all the bigger, tougher men working out around him. For example, RJ used to watch himself while he trained in the mirror, not out of vanity like the other men would do, but because he was trying to figure out just how his body worked 
He would write down all sorts of data and make sketches and careful notes of even the slightest changes. While other men had come to lift, RJ had come to learn. After all, this was now a respected field around the academic circles of Boston. It was that new field of study called um, physical education. It was pretty cutting-edge stuff back then. In fact, RJ met one of the very founders of that field at the gym that spring in 1869. He was a professor named George Winship, a guy from Harvard, and he was one of the first to study the physiology of muscle growth and development. Winship was impressed with this little guy. I mean, how could he not be? I mean, Winship was himself a little on the shorter side. He knew what RJ was up to, and he supported the young man's efforts, even offering his own personal guidance for help along the way. After meeting George Winship, it didn't take long for word of RJ's research to reach the YMCA office over on Elliott Street. RJ's talents were showing incredible results, even under such primitive conditions. And so, even before his 18th year was over, RJ found himself fully hired onto the YMCA of Boston. R.J. Roberts was now the head of physical education at the Boston Young Men's Christian Association. Still just a teenager, but now he was called Professor. His passion for muscle had won him work. You know, just like everyone said it does. R.J. was 145 pounds by now, with 15-inch biceps, which, you know, for the time was pretty diesel. In his 20s, he became a minor Massachusetts celebrity. Well, at least within any area where, you know, physicality was revered. He was regularly invited to art colleges to model for drawing classes or pose for artists. He was known for having incredible muscle definition, and the papers started writing about how he may have just had the best built back ever seen in Boston. The ideal build, they called it. There is even a famous statue in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York that's based on his physique. But even though RJ was making good on his original promise, he wasn't doing it for the spotlight. Sure, he was a self-possessed guy, but also, surprisingly, R.J. was sort of shy when it came to fame. Unlike the loud, boisterous strongmen who inspired him, or the strength-driven roughnecks who loved to brag at the gym, R.J. was a humbler, quieter sort of young man. I mean, he could get animated when it came time to exercise. He really loved the work. But that was just enthusiasm. He, meanwhile, didn't have much interest in cashing in the fame and glory the way other well-built men of the day were trying to do. R.J. just loved the work. I mean, he really, really loved the work. And so he wanted other people to love it too. Which is the only time you might catch him showing off, just to get other people excited and maybe get a student to jump in. He really wanted to show people how exercise could better their lives, just the way it had bettered his. 
This mission became R.J. Roberts' life work. He spent over a decade refining and refining and refining those methods and ideas he had been creating since he was 18. Year after year after year he evolved his message at the YMCA, at the BYMCU, at Springfield College, at wherever there were students eager to learn the young professor's methods. Professor RJ would even be consulted on military training, and he would get hired by boxers and athletes, the same kinds of men who probably used to laugh at the skinny 18-year-old. And now they paid for his consultation. He was even asked to provide instruction to the newly founded Boston baseball team, the Red Stockings. Right, before there were socks in Boston, there were stockings. And RJ was behind the scenes, making them run faster, swing harder, and play better. Of course, RJ Roberts himself had set all sorts of personal records. Some may have been exaggerations on the truth, like the time he was said to have done a shoulder press of 2,200 pounds. But others were quite well documented, like the time he dove underwater and, in just one breath, swam 160 feet without coming up for air. Not even once. During his long career all around Boston, Professor Robert J. Roberts went to all sorts of gymnasiums and college teaching his message, sharing his insight. But he always seemed to favor his work at the YMCA most. In fact, he stayed there in employment well into his 50s. But that was probably because the YMCA's then were more than just gyms. Back in the 1800s, a YMCA was also a place where you could get an education, especially at a working man's wage. For just one affordable price, the working class could find libraries and take courses, and we're talking real academic curriculum and all sorts of topics and disciplines. So for a poor laborer or an immigrant new to this country, or a black man from former slave heritage, the classes offered at a YMCA represented a chance that a poor person would typically never get to see. It was a chance to get ahead. They were offered something no one thought they could do, and yet they helped you achieve it. Which is probably why RJ liked it there so much, and why he stayed for most of his career, being an integral part of this growing educational institution. Folks would come in for RJ, but then they'd stay for the education. In fact, by 1898, all those classes at the YMCA on Boylston Street in Boston had grown so popular and so frequent that they had to rename the whole program. So, in 1898, the Department of Law at the Boston YMCA was certified as its own legitimate law school. Imagine that. A YMCA became a school just because the men and women who wanted to learn how to work out also discovered they just wanted to learn. R.J. Roberts would call this his destiny. He knew that building the body could inspire us to build our minds as well. In fact, that's what he kind of started calling his work. It's a term that we still use today. Robert J. Roberts was the man in the 1880s who gave us all the term bodybuilding. Looks like his promise in 1869, made in the basement gym of the Park Street Church, came true 
he really did give the nation an ideal version of a physique. Or at least the archetype of one. Robert J. Roberts gave us, you and I, through his methods and his words, bodybuilding. The term we all know today, and the principles it was all based on, started via the passion of a single, quiet teenager obsessed with getting jacked. And what happened to that law school that was being conducted in RJ's YMCA? Well, it's still around today. In fact, it's a whole lot bigger. These days, we refer to it as Northeastern University, and it's one of the largest academic institutions in the American city with the most colleges, Boston, Massachusetts. Now, of course, there's a lot more to the story of how a YMCA became a major university. But back in 1869, no one would have ever guessed that this is what all this physical education would evolve into. Because no one would have ever guessed that a small gymnasium could not only build a body of muscular might, but it could also build an idea into an institution of higher learning. Well, no one would have guessed that except for maybe one specific 18-year-old boy, barely 130 pounds, the face of a kid. It's that short fellow, yeah, over there, in the corner, by the mirror, improvising his equipment, writing down all his methods. That's RJ. But don't be fooled. He only looks like a small guy. Thanks again for stepping inside the big inside. We're hoping to bring you more segments like this. We really had a lot of fun putting it together. It was a lot of work, um, you know, a lot of fighting going on, but it was a great episode to put together. Did you like it? Was it good? Please, please let us know. Please, like right now, on your computer, go to the big inside. Go to thebiginside.com. Go to the episode and leave a comment there. We love that. Or just click the like button. That's like so easy. Or go to the Facebook page and leave a note there. Or send us an email, just however it is. We want to hear from you guys. Please, we love hearing from you guys. Did you like it? Did you hate it? Do you want to see more of it? Did you never do it again? Let us know. We had a lot of fun putting it together. We'd love to hear from you guys to know how we did. Our sponsors today, the show, as always, sponsored by SciSay Sports, S-A-I-S-E-I Sports, makers of the new pre-workout formula, REC. That's R-E-K-T. Better dosage of ingredients, higher quality ingredients. It's a pre-workout formula that's designed truly for the elite lifter. Really recommend it. Give it a try. You can learn more about Rekt and buy it for yourself at SciSaySports.com, S-A-I-S-E-I Sports.com. We've also been brought to you by Scorpio Creative. It's a boutique branding and marketing firm for small companies, little little guys like you. Um, they partner with you. They let you control your marketing, but also teach you the way to increase your business. So whether it's logos and you know letterhead or whether it's full websites and strategy on social media, go to Scorpio Creative. I said it funny, ScorpioCreative.com. Uh, the Big Inside is independently funded, so we rely on you guys, you stunningly gorgeous people, to help us keep going. Please consider going to TheBigInside.com. Drop a few bucks. It's very easy. Click a button, put your credit card in, money comes to us. You've supported the show. If you like this, if you think there's any, an iota of talent here, please, please help us maintain that. Give us a little few bucks. It doesn't have to be a lot. You know, We'll even chat you up in the air and be like, oh, Bill gave us money. We won't say your last name because then people will come hunting you down. Your aunt or something will ask for money. In fact, you know what? If you let's say you own a business, just hump our leg. 
become a sponsor of the show. We really, really love taking on new sponsors. And if you're a small business and want to pump your wares, you know, give us a call. Karma is real, guys. We love we love selling your stuff. As usual, as you know, we like to end each episode with a little insider, a little gem of an idea that we personally recommend you look into. And I think it's obvious what I'm going to pick. Find the book, Bodybuilding. It's not one word. It's Body Space Building. It's about Robert J. Roberts, the guy we did the show about. In fact, you know what? Go look up any training or exercise documents from prior to like 1910. It's a trip. I mean, it's always hilarious, funny turns of phrases, but it's really amazing. You you really learn stuff. Like I read this book and I like I'm like, oh my gosh, where it was like revel, uh, minor revelations throughout. It's really incredible to know that this stuff's been going on for so long and there's some really amazing stuff that we've forgotten even exists. And that's it. That's today's show. Today's show is produced by the Physiculture Collaborative, who were the first to invent the word handy wipe. It's true. Handy wipe. Truth. Look it up. It's history. Shut up. Music in today's episode was all Creative Commons licensed, and it was composed by Kevin McLeod and Competech, Hyde, with a Y, Hyde, and Reverb Nation. Please check these artists out online because they're just, they're amazing. And that's your workout for your ears this week. I'm Christian Mady, a.k.a. XN for The Big Inside, reminding you that no matter what you do on your outside, what makes it big is what's found on the inside. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you later.